Well, please take, please take your, uh, your copy of God's Word and join me at Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. As I said, I was in Israel just a few weeks ago on uh, part of the Expositor's seminary tour, and then we had our own tour with 60 people from our church. And during that time, there were many sites that brought fresh memories of God's grace, fresh memories of, of biblical narratives to mind. And one of them that is my, one of my favorite, most intriguing narratives in all of Scripture happened in Susita, which is the setting for what we're going to look at this morning. And it just pulled my heart. The gravitational pull was so strong to just look at this text over and over again. And so I want to share it with you this morning. If you want a title, it's called The Most Improbable Missionary. The Most Improbable Missionary, the Gerasene Demoniac. Let me read this passage for us so we have it fresh in our minds. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he, that is Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles had been broken into pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, Night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. He began to implore him earnestly not to send them in, out of the country. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter into them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. When they, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. They began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And Jesus did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went out and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. 
The story raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? And we're going to answer very few of them today. And the reason is very few of them are answered in this text. For example, can demon infest animals? Well, they did here. And anyone who knows about cats knows that they can still do that. (laughs) Mark doesn't answer our curiosities. And I have a lot of curiosities. How many demons can fit in a person? How many demons can fit in a pig or a cat? As we open the fifth chapter of Mark, you parachute into a fluid situation, pun intended, as you'll see in a moment. The disciples have responded to Jesus' direction to sail from the north part of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum to the other side, which we discover is in the land of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes. Now, some of us were in Israel just a few weeks ago, and let me give you a quick history, a geographical lesson if I can. Think of the Sea of Galilee like shaped like my hand. It's seven miles across, 13 miles top to bottom. Jesus had just fed about 20,000 people at 1 o'clock. The intention was to go down to 7 o'clock where he had an appointment in a day or so with um, Jairus' daughter who was sick and getting sicker and he would raise her from the dead. So he's going from 1 o'clock to 7 o'clock. Got it? But they end up at 4 o'clock. How does this happen? Rewind the tape back into chapter 4. Follow along from verse 35. On that day, when evening came, he, Jesus, said, Let us go to the other side. Let us go from 1 o'clock to 7 o'clock in the sea. Leaving the crowd, they took along with them in the boat, just as he was And other boats were with him. So just get the picture. There's a flotilla of boats. It's not just one boat that Jesus is in. There's a a few boats that they're they're sailing from 1 o'clock down to 7 o'clock. And there arose a fierce gale. I don't have to tell you about this living in Florida. This is a hurricane force, Category 5 storm. The wind and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much so that the boat was already filling up. Jesus was in the rear, in the stern, probably under a deck where they had cushions and could take reprieve from the sun and rest. Jesus was in the stern, in the middle of this hurricane, asleep on a cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, you do not care that we are perishing? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. He said to them, why why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is so exhausted from ministry, he's asleep in the stern of the boat 
on a cushion. Luke actually tells us the boat was taking on water and that they, they all thought they were about to sink and drown in the middle of the lake. So they wake Jesus up. How tired do you have to be to sleep through a hurricane in the middle of the lake, in the sea? He stands up. Jesus speaks to the sea, the lake. He speaks to the wind and tells them to cut it out. And they do. He's wet. He's worn, rebukes the wind, rebukes the waves. They obey his command and stand down in the lake, then becomes like glass. The winds stop. The stars reappear. They could no doubt now see the fires lit along the shore for light. The last verse in chapter 4 is the clue we need to understand the story here with the Gerasene demoniac. And it has to do with the idea of a word you know that you don't may not understand as, as a Greek term that you've used often. It's the term mega. Mark tends to stack up words in short pericopes, in short paragraphs. And when Mark does that, it should alert our attention that he's, he's trying to ring the bell. Look at this. Verse 37 of chapter 4. And there arose a fierce gale, literally a mega wind. Verse 39. The wind died down and it became mega calm. Verse 41. They became very much afraid. Mega afraid. Mega Mega, mega, a lot, a lot, a lot. Big deal, big deal, big deal, Mark says. But the fear of the storm outside the boat was nothing compared to the fear of the one who calmed the storm in the boat. They became very much afraid. And they ask each other, who is this dude? He talks to nature and it obeys. They had just seen him Multiply a lunch. And they're still asking the question. Jesus is about to do the unexpected. He's going to heal and save a Gentile man infested with demons who was a terrorist. And as we witness this great work of salvation in this man, I want to follow along with our own hearts in this narrative by navigating three junctures in the framework of salvation. If you'd like an outline, we're going to go that direction. Three junctures, three pivot points, three junctures in the framework of salvation. And what I think is fascinating is this man's salvation is identical to ours in the framework of the junctures. Oh, it may look more dramatic, but it's no more dramatic. Every person's salvation is a supernatural, dramatic conversion. No less so than this man's. But this will be a, a good kind of a pattern for us to follow. Three junctures in the framework of salvation. The first is in verses 1 to 5. A hopeless condition. It's where he starts and where we started. A hopeless condition. Verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea. Remember, they're starting at 1 o'clock. Let's see if you're listening. What do they start? 1. They're going to 7. And now they... Now there are four. 
They came to the other side of the sea. Jesus has just calmed the sea. The water is glass. The wind has stopped. The disciples are no doubt rowing for shore. After just being in the worst storm of their lives, landfall is most welcome. But the safety and comfort they had hoped for was about to be shattered. Because they came to the side, look at the next phrase, in the country of the Gerasenes. That's a big deal. The land or the country of the Gerasenes. Gerasa, Kursi, Gergesa, it's called different things. This was the area within the, within the administrative district of Hippos, which was one of the major cities of the Decapolis, ten cities, Gentile cities, at the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And the location is critical to the whole story. It's Gentile territory. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish Messiah and his Jewish followers are no longer in their home stadium. They are in an away hostile environment. Mark makes some important points he wants us to notice here. This tormented man had an unclean spirit. Verse 2, an unclean. It was ceremonially unclean, undesired. Don't touch, don't be near. He had been banished to live among the tombs which would decree him to be unclean according to Old Testament law, Numbers 19, uh, says that contact with the dead or the place of the dead make you unclean for seven days. In fact, Numbers 19 says that you, if you didn't purify yourself immediately, you would be cut off from Israel. Add to this the uncleanness of the presence of pigs to a Jew and pig herders. By the way, in the region were also swine herders. Pork was strictly forbidden, as you know, by the Jewish dietary law, Leviticus 11, 7, 11, excuse me, 11 verse 7, Deuteronomy 14. And finally, pork was a staple of the Roman army, and there was a massive Roman army stationed just south of here. So you mess up these pigs, you mess up the lunch and dinner of a lot of guys who could be really angry. See where this is going? So let's do the math. Jesus and his followers were land on shore. They meet a man with an unclean spirit, according to Matthew, by the way. There was another man with the demoniac who was also possessed with an unclean spirit. These men were living among the unclean tombs. They were surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations as unclean people, and it all happened in unclean Gentile territory. Can you say unclean? With all this uncleanliness that stacks into verse 2. And he got out of the boat. Huh? Couldn't they just have rowed? It's only seven miles at the longest point. Couldn't they have just gone to seven o'clock and just gone where they, was, they were intending? The storm had blown them offshore. Off, off course, rather. They got out of the boat. Which is interesting the way it says that. He got out of the boat. Because the implication is, they didn't. <laughs> These men knew this lake and its surroundings very well. That was their, their, their occupation. It's not that big. They knew every nook and cranny, every part of the shore, every inhabitant around the shore. I think it's reasonable to, reasonable to believe they knew exactly where this man was, the, the, the little 
caves that he has, has uh, accumulated, other demon-possessed people where he was living. We were just there, some of us, a few weeks ago, and you can see it's a 10 out of 10. Those are the caves. That's where he lived. Then you have Mark's favorite word that meets us next. Immediately, just then, right then, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit came to meet him. Or unclean again. God gets, sets up rather this divine appointment between the demoniac and Jesus. Again, Matthew tells us there were two men who came down. Mark deals with the leader and the most prominent man. Not difficult to conclude that the man might have attracted others who were afflicted by demons up in those caves. I think it's likely that God used this storm in this demon-infested man to get his attention. Let's think about this. It's a small lake. It's just up on the ridge. Do you not think he was in the middle of this hurricane-force wind a few hours earlier? Hiding, probably cowering in the cave for shelter, and it's thunder and lightning and wind and howling and rain and stop. Glass. Instant. Storms don't usually stop like that. If that had stopped like that and you and I were in the cave, what would we have done? Stuck our head out? What, what in the world? And he does. And he looks down, and just down below him on the ridge, at the bottom of the ridge is a flotilla of boats. And he runs down. He comes to meet Jesus. These next verses describe the man and his condition. It's almost a footnote. It's difficult to read this without sensing the gravity of his situation, almost a, a, a sympathetic pity. I think it's a fair assumption that the disciples and the followers sailing with Jesus knew of this man and these men and his terrorizing people as they tried to pass, probably on their way up toward Damascus. Later, we know that he was well enough known that when he went back to the Decapolis to tell what had happened, everybody knew him. Pretty famous guy. Verse 3. He had his dwelling among the tombs. These were the caves. And no one, look at this phrase, no one. It keeps showing up. No one was able to tie him up, to bind him. Key phrase, anymore. Used to be able to, not anymore. Even with a chain. They moved from ropes to chains because he had often been bound with Shackles and chains. They bind the chains together with these shackles. The chains have been torn apart by him. The shackles broken into pieces. And here's our word again. No one was strong enough to subdue him. No one. No rope, no chain, no shackle, nothing held. There was obviously a supernatural strength that was operative in this man with multiple demons, as we'll see in a minute. He was able to break any kind of binding into pieces. When I preached this in our church, one of our high schoolers said, this dude was the Thanos of Galilee. Okay. Constantly, verse 5, constantly. This is just terrifying for him and for those around him all the time, constantly, night and day. Did the guy ever sleep? He was screaming among the tombs and the mountains, gashing himself with stones, constant, miserable, inescapable, heart-wrenching torment, likely cutting himself to try to get an exit ramp to the demons. 
that we're inside. Mark is showing us very clearly that this is a most unlikely person to come to salvation. A most unlikely disciple, a definitely undesirable, unhirable missionary. The argument should be made that if Jesus would and could save this man from a condition like this with such compassion and grace and mercy, there is hope for every sinner, even you if you don't know the Savior this morning. Can I just ask you, do you, I'm thinking of someone right now, do you know someone who your heart, who needs to know the Lord, but your heart wants to give up? You just think, they'll never come. They're too hard. They're too distant. They're too evil. They're too wicked. Family member, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend from your childhood, They just seem beyond the reach of God's grace. Put them in this guy's category. Hopeless condition. Three junctures in the framework of salvation, a hopeless condition. Number two, a dramatic conversion. A dramatic conversion. Verse six, seeing Jesus from up on the hill, from a distance, up in the caves, looks down at the bottom, flotilla of boats, he sees Jesus again. It looks like Jesus is the only one out of the boat from a distance. It says he ran, literally rushed, sprinted, and bowed, prostrated face to the ground down before him. And verse 7, here's our word again, and shouted with a mega voice, another big voice, Mega storm, mega fear, mega calm, and now a mega voice. He shouted, and the the voice must have thundered in the ears of the disciples sitting in the boat. Shouted. What business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God. What was the last question? the disciples were asking before this story, who is this man? What's the first observation of this demon-infested terrorist? I know who you are. Do you see the contrast there? You're the son of the most high God. The demons knew Jesus' identity. The disciples, not so quick to recognize The ascription is important. He's not merely the son of God, but the son of the most high God. It's a pronouncement against the polytheism that would have existed in that entire region of the Decapolis, 10 cities of the Roman Empire there on the south port of the Sea of Galilee. Why is that important? Rewind the tape to Luke chapter 1. An angel visits Mary. And the angel tells Mary this, Your son will be great, and your son will be called the Son of the Most High God. There's one place in the Gospels where that happens. It's here. This is the fulfillment of the angel's prophecy from the lips of a demon-infested man. 
I mean, can you imagine Mary hearing about this later? We know that she was around. She's there all the way up to the ascension, right? And they tell this, and this demon, he comes out and he says, Son of the Most High God, ding, ding, ding. I remember the angel telling me he would be called that. Didn't know it would be that, that guy who would do it. I implore you, he says, by God, do not torment me. Interesting word. I, I ask you to swear. Cause, cause an oath to happen between us. Strike a deal. Swear to God that you will not torment me. The man lays on the ground, his face in the dirt. Everyone's afraid of him. This man is prostrate before Jesus. He begs Jesus, please forestall the certain and coming judgment that I know awaits me. The demons know what's coming. There is an immediate recognition that Jesus is the judge and Lord of the demons. Verse 8, for he had been saying to him, this is the, the tense of the Greek here, that means this is an ongoing conversation. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now we see Jesus casting out demons a lot before this. And he says, come out and they come out. Why Does Jesus fail here? Come out and he has to do it again. Come out and he has to do it again. Why does he have to keep doing this? He had been saying to him, singular, come out of the man, you unclean spirit, singular. But now we find out something in verse 9. And Jesus was saying to him, what's your name? Why, do we, why does he ask his name? Because it's to show us why Jesus casting out the demon, quote unquote, didn't work. Because it did work for that one and second and third. What's your name? He said, my name is Legion, for we are many. We, now we got a change in the, in the, uh, the, the, the number, not I, but we. We are many. Legion is a Roman Latin term, describes a military unit of 6,000 soldiers. There's 6,000 of us in here. Oh, cast him out. There's one right behind him. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send, look at the case, the, the number again, them into the, now they're speaking for each other. Thrown out, thrown out, thrown out. Now they're speaking. For you. Don't, don't, don't throw us out of the country. Then comes verse 11. Now, there was a large herd of pigs, of swine, feeding nearby on the ridge, on the mountain. We were just there um, at uh, Susita. This, it's, it's a 10 out of 10 on the, the lake where, what this was because the, the brow of the hill comes over and dives straight down, and the lake is a few hundred yards uh, re recessed because there's been earthquakes that have filled it in since then. But it's a cliff, straight cliff, and the, the pig herders would have been up there. Large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, saying, they have a good idea, send us into the swine so that we may enter into them. Jesus gave them permission. So much there. So much not there. First of all, Jesus is the Lord of the demons, not the devil. He's the one that they seek permission from. Remember in Job, the devil has to show up and get his orders even from God before he can act. They recognize that he's the Lord. 
They say, don't send us into the coming judgment. Instead, give us a break. Send us into the pigs. Now, I, this, look, I don't know. I, let me just tell I don't know. I don't know why it's, don't send us into the space or into air or, you know, to Jerusalem or to Assyria or why in animals? I, I don't know. Quit asking. <laughs> I'm asking. I don't know. But it happens. And Mark gives us no explanation. He gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits, about 6,000 or so, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So I don't know the math. Maybe some of them had one. Maybe some of them had more. But about two, per, two demons per pig. Let's just say it that way. They run over the cliff and they fall in the lake and they drown. Can you use your sanctified imagination for a second? 2,000 pigs floating, bobbing, washing up on the shore. What a sight. Somebody says, well, what about the pigs? James Edwards writes, As it stands, the story directs undivided attention to the rescue of one man from a tragic and torturous fate, here, perhaps, is the essential moral of the miracle, surpassing even the dilemma of the loss of pigs. In the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than the vast capital assets. Compared to the redemption of a human being, the loss of swine herds, considerable though it was, does not rate even mentioning, end quote. And there's, there's no footnote. It just goes to verse 14. They're herdsmen. The camera shifts to the shepherds of the pigs. They're herdsmen. Ran away and reported it in the city, in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. Imagine the scene of the pigs. Mark doesn't tell us about them. They came to Jesus and observed not the pigs, they observed the man who had been possessed, demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the 6,000, the legion. And they became scared. They became frightened. They were terrified. Fear after Jesus calmed the storm. Now fear after the demoniac is delivered points to the proper response to the true identity of God in Jesus. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Camera shifts to the crowd. Those, verse 16, who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and about all the swine. He was talking to them. There was this conversation and then the pigs over and we came and gotcha. Response, <laughs> verse 17, and they began to beg him to implore him, leave our region, get out of here. Why? You're going to wreck our economy. I mean, what are you going to do next? Their shift was not on, their, their focus was not on the man, it was, it was on the pigs. Everyone saw this man as a terrorist 
dangerous terrorist in need of subjection. Jesus saw this man as a tortured soul in need of salvation. What vision, what grace, what perspective, what love. He had a dramatic, dramatic conversion. Three junctures in the framework of salvation, a hopeless condition. Number two, a dramatic conversion. And now number three, a gospel commission. A gospel commission. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat. Remember, he was getting in the boat. The doesn't say anything about the disciples. This is all him. I just have a feeling they're, they're in the boat, just happy to watch this from the shore, from off the shore. He was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And then the words of verse 19, and Jesus did not let him. For months, Jesus has been calling people, follow me, follow me, follow me. Some did, many didn't. Follow me, follow me, follow me. And now a guy says, I want to follow you. And he says, nope, can't do it. Does that not seem odd? It should. He did not let him. But he said to him, Go home, oh, this phrase, to your people. Most of the time in the Greek New Testament, we, we translate that to your family. Can you imagine that this man had parents, perhaps brothers and sisters, cousins, friends. They had seen his life devolve into this heinous condition. And Jesus, he could have just said, go home. He doesn't. He says, go home and to your people. Go, go, go to the people who care about you, who you care about, and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. The Lord, Jesus tells him, to tell them what the Lord had done. Do you, you see Jesus calling himself the Lord here? Self-attesting to his lordship and his deity? Go report what great things the Lord has done for you. For this man, the Lord and the Jesus are one and the same. And in the Gospel of Mark, particularly, the healed demoniac becomes the first missionary preacher sent out by Jesus. This is crazy. The first missionary sent out by Jesus is this guy. Remarkably, he's a Gentile sent to Gentiles, not even to the Jewish nation. I love the obedience, verse 20. And he went out and began to proclaim in Decapolis, in 10 cities, he was on the preaching tour. Everybody knew him. You remember that dude who was in the hills and, and terrorizing people and we couldn't bind him and, and he, he's here and he's in his right mind and he has something to say. What did he say? What great things Jesus had done for him. That's what Jesus told him to do and that's what he did. Kim, can we just pull the car over for a minute there? Evangelism is nothing more than telling what great things God has done for you in Christ. It's proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you his own glory and excellence. I think it's interesting that in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense and apologetic to everyone who asks you to give an account, watch this, for the hope that's within you. May I suggest that your most powerful evangelistic tool is your testimony? What great things God has done for you. I have been shut down so many times evangelistically when, you know, uh, did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Or uh, do you ever think spiritual thoughts? I've, I've tried all the on-ramps and it's usually stiff arm, no thank you. No one has ever said no to this question. question. You have a minute, I can tell you something like supernatural that happened in my life. Like, what? Everybody wants to hear that. They may not want to hear much after that, <laughs> but they'll at least listen. The, the, the commission is go tell what great things the Lord has done for you. If you're a believer, you have a story of the great things God has done for you. Oh, I was raised in a Christian home. There was never a time that I didn't believe. But at one point, I was convicted of my sins and God saved me. That's a dramatic conversion. Just as much as the guy who was rescued off Skid Row. And then the last phrase of verse 20, and everyone was amazed. Everyone was amazed. Art should bring amazement at the artist. Composition should bring amazement about the composer. Salvation should make us amazed at the Savior. Our message is Jesus Christ is amazing. And can I tell you, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at what he's done. The striking part of this narrative is at the end of chapter 4, the disciples are asking, who is Jesus? And this story from the lips of a demon-infested man is... He's the son of the most high God, the savior of the world. Can I just throw a few takeaways at you that kind of grabbed my heart in this story? They're in no special order. These are just, these are literally bullet points that I wrote down from my own heart. The forgiven and the healed want to be with Jesus, go with Jesus, and go for Jesus. In other words, our compulsion to go talk about the Lord is because of what he's done for us what he's done to us. Also, Jesus has absolute control over the powers of the natural and supernatural forces. He's in control of every raindrop we heard earlier. He's sovereign over every cancer cell in this universe. His lordship matters and is meaningful. Jesus is the son of the most high God. The angel said, Mary, he will be called the son of the most high God. He didn't say, by a demon-infested dude, but he was. Every conversion qualifies as dramatic. If you've come to faith in Christ, you are a walking miracle. He raised the dead in you. And then for those who have loved ones who we just feel like are beyond salvation, there is no human condition beyond the power and reach of God and His grace. Beyond the reach of Jesus. No, nobody's beyond that reach. 
And if we take our clue from the text, our takeaway should be the last phrase. Everyone was amazed. There's no greater thought a human mind can conceive of than the Lord Jesus. There's no one more wonderful, no one more amazing. Are we amazed? Is he the centerpiece of our faith or just a part of it? I think this text encourages us to be more like the demon's confession than the disciples. I said their confession, not them. They knew who Jesus was, and he wants us to as well. He is the son of the most high God. He died for us. He rose for us. He intercedes for us. I trust that you know him. If, if you don't, don't leave today without talking to someone around you. There's a lot of people around. Just say, hey, can I talk about my soul? He can reach into any condition and make you a citizen of heaven and give you hope for eternity. And I would beg you not to leave without that secure, even today. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. What a grace there is in this story, Father, that your son had mercy on him. He, he didn't give him what he deserved, which was to join these demons in forever torment. Make us amazed by you, our amazing Lord. For your glory and your grace, we pray, Lord, please make us faithful to tell others what great things you have done for us, in us, to us. So the gospel is heard, embraced, and known, and more worshipers of your Son can join in this precious body. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.